This is episode number 32 of the Sachin and Adam show. Today we're with Sam Ref Shorgi. Sam previously um, was CEO of Patir and he now works at um, Young Change Agents, which is Sachin's current job. He's done a whole bunch of um, different things in his career, but we're definitely excited to dive into some things, talking about his experiences in business and also his work with our mental health organizations as today is the IEOK day. Yeah, and we didn't even plan this for this to happen. No, pretend um, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Sam's a pretty busy guy and we haven't, um, we've been wanting to make this happen for a long, long time, but it's so exciting to finally get it on the road. So Sam, um, Obviously, Adam gave you the gave the brief introduction, but you've had a lot of um, experience across the not for profit sector, and Batia now with Young Change Agents, and you've recently moved up the North Coast, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But I think um, a really interesting place to start would be maybe your experience living in Jakarta and um, working the rugby over there. It seems a bit different to the other stuff you've done in your life. Yeah, for sure. It uh, it definitely is different or it was different to be completely honest feels like an, another world and potentially a very different me but it was um it was easily one of the most uh, amazing experiences i've had throughout my career and throughout my life and it's actually ridiculous to think back on some of the stories and things that happened over there and and feel like that was actually me you know the the opportunity to go over to Indonesia um, was a really lucky one at the time. Um, it was through an Australian government initiative called the uh, Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development, which actually doesn't exist in its same form at the moment, but um, there's similar sort of programs, which essentially try and send young people who are early on in their career, but have developed a few skills and experiences along the way, send them over to, uh, at, the, at the time it was Southeast Asia, to work in different development areas, um, sport being one, being very a small one. Um, and so I got the opportunity after a pretty average rugby career uh, to go over and work as a rugby development officer in Jakarta, April, Indonesia. What was that? April. I was playing for UNSW when I was at uni. Um, I played a, a couple of years as subbies rugby out at Hunters Hill. Um, and I did a bit of coaching over in England when I when I played a, well, when I did a gap year over there. So that was really my rugby CV. I must have been somehow very good at writing an application. Um, actually, to be completely honest, it was probably my mum's help that got me that uh, that gig at the time. Um, and so yeah, got 12, 12 months uh, working for the Indonesian Rugby Union based out of Jakarta. Got the opportunity to travel all around the islands of Indonesia, working with different rugby clubs, uh, with young people, with the adults, uh, got the opportunity to manage the, um, the national men's 15s team. We started up the rugby sevens tournament and team there as well. Um, and all of that in a country where I didn't know how to speak the language and they had no idea what rugby union was. So yeah, there's, there's lots of different things there, but incredible, uh, in, Incredible way to uh, to you know early on in my career to experience a whole lot of different things in a very supercharged and fast-paced way. That's fascinating. Um, I'm wondering, what did you think of Indonesia, especially from a development perspective? Absolutely loved it. Um, I think Indonesia, well, especially at, at you know at that stage, it was probably what 10, 
10, maybe more years ago. No, about 10 years or 10, 11 years ago. At that stage, most Aussies know Indonesia by Bali. Um, and at Bali gets a pretty bad rep um, over here in terms of tourism and, um, and mainly the behaviour of Australians over there. Um, where, and so, you know, I didn't really know much about Indonesia besides that. I, had, I didn't even really know where Jakarta was. And so I was going into it completely blind, um, but knew I just wanted to go and experience something completely different and, and was an incredible opportunity. And I was absolutely blown away by the beauty of the country, the warmth of the people, uh, the deliciousness of the food. Jakarta itself is an absolutely hectic city. Um, you know, you can hardly walk down the street without thousands of people running into you, motorbikes going everywhere. The pollution is incredible. Living in huge high-rise buildings, just surrounded by people and, and uh, masters of things. Um, and so it's really overwhelming and full on, but you go outside of Jakarta to the islands that, um, that you just, you, you only imagine in postcards and travel brochures and they're still there, they're still untouched and you can experience that all at the same time. So yeah, Indonesia has a very special place in my heart and um, I've been back a few times, um, but we'll hopefully be able to spend more time there in the future once travel starts to open up again. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that as Australians going forward, we always think about China and India as the kind of key strategic alliances. But I was reading that Indonesia is actually, it's the third most populous country right now and its economy is going to be um, third or fourth. And they, its economy is going to be really important for Australia going forward in the future, especially with what's happening in China. So I think yeah. as Australians, we can, as you said, just think about Indonesia as Bali and think it's this small island, but it's this massive place. Huge country. Yeah. And I've heard mm. the best things. Like everybody who's been, like worked in Indonesia that I've talked to just said lovely things yeah. about the country, the landscape, the people. Yeah. No, that's yeah. awesome. And so I think a lot of our listeners would usually they'd be taking kind of very safe um, things in their twenties, like going into a graduate position and stuff like that. And it seems like you went through this kind of exploration phase after you finished uni and then decided to go back um, and do your AGSM. What was kind of like your mentality at that time, kind of coming back from Indonesia, having spent a year um, with the rugby and then coming back to Australia. What was, what, what was on your mind back then? Yeah, well, after, yeah, you're completely right. Like all, all the decisions I've made, the paths that I've taken, unless you me, they make no sense at all. Um, so, and to me, they probably don't really either, but that, that's what I think has been the key to my success um, in, uh, in some way, shape or form is, is saying yes to those opportunities and taking the, to, the risks to do the things that seem uh, a little bit, crazy, a little bit wild, a little bit different. Um, at the end of my 12 months in Jakarta, I actually loved the place so much that a friend of mine uh, and I, who was working over there at the same time, we went back and then spent six months um, just with backpacks and surfboards traveling through the, all the different islands of Indonesia. Um, and at the end of that trip, we actually ended up in India at the, um, at the Commonwealth Games at the time. I wasn't competing, we were just spectating. Um, and, uh, and I, I still remember there was a time in between, I'm pretty sure it was the cycling and the gymnastics or something like that, that the two of us were, were sitting down and just having a think about what, what, what's happened over the last 18 months and going back to Australia and what the hell we're going to do. Like, 
where do you go to from there? Those experiences, what we've done, what we've been able to achieve and what we've seen. How do you go back to your sort of home country and, and be serious maybe or, or grow up as some of the terms that get thrown at you? Um, and, and for me, I was kind of looking at, at two, two options. One was to follow the, um, the path of my degree, which is I did, I did a Bachelor of Commerce um, majoring in tourism, hospitality, management and marketing, something like that. Um, and the idea behind doing that was that I wanted to go into tourism and eventually try and run a resort on a tropical island. That was my dream. That was sort of what, what I wanted to do. Um, I quickly realized that but to do that, you have to work in hospitality for a long time. And I didn't think I was really cut out for it. So anyway, I, was, I, was, I had two parts. We were sitting there we were talking about it. One was to try and get into tourism and, and work at a place like New South Wales Tourism or Tourism Australia. The other was to try and follow my, my heart and my values and my ethics a little bit more and try and get into a field or an area that I felt passionate about that I wanted to contribute in. And we happened to be sitting there talking about it at the same time that an organisation called AIM, which is the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience at the times, now just known as AIM, because um, it's, it's branched out to be working internationally now as well. They were, <coughs> excuse me, they were advertising jobs. And so I literally threw my hat in the ring for both of those. There was a job at um, Tourism New South Wales and there was a job at AIM. Um, and I was going to see how I went with both. Tourism New South Wales didn't even call me back. AIM, I managed to go through the recruitment process and I got the gig. Um, and that really opened up my, my world, my eyes and, and opportunities to the world of non-for-profits. Um, and thankfully has then taken me on the path that I've uh, been able to take since then. That's really interesting. Um, so I've mentored for AIM before and Sachin's actually got an interview there uh, tomorrow. So I was just wondering, <laughs> yeah, coincidentally, what, what's your perspective on the work that AIM does and the contribution they make? That's cool. Are you, are you going for a job there, Sach? No, no, just, just as a volunteer. Just, oh, awesome. Yeah, last mentor. time at uni, I kind of wanted to do something a bit different. Um, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Oh, I, I have such an incredible story. You know, it started, it started at the time that I was at university, starting university. So Jack Manning Bancroft, the founder, who's a good friend of mine now, um, he's a young Aboriginal guy that was, um, that were, got a scholarship to Sydney Uni. Um, and when he went there, he was at one of the prestigious colleges there, surrounded by uh, non-Indigenous people. And everyone would keep on asking him, probably in, in a, um, coming from a right place, but would ask him why there weren't more Aboriginal people at the university. Um, and Sydney Uni, for those who don't know, is, is located just down the road from Redfern, which is one of the most populated Aboriginal areas in Australia. Yet most of the people there had no, never set foot on Sydney Union. There's this big, massive disconnect. Um, and you sort of take a step back from that and look at that in the context of our country. Um, we live on Aboriginal land. Australia is, uh, is Aboriginal land. Yet there's such a disconnect between uh, the non-Indigenous world and the Indigenous world. And I think that's holding a whole lot of us back from really embracing the beautiful country and all its diversity and its rich history and culture that will make us better in the future. And so I feel like AIM, along with a, a whole lot of other things that it's done 
throughout its time, one of the key things that, that I have felt the impact of is making that connection between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia a whole lot easier and a whole lot closer, which has helped a whole lot of non-Indigenous people like myself be able to learn more in a truly uh, empathetic and authentic way about our country um, and, and what it means to be Australian. And, um, and for that, I'm really grateful. And now what AIM has been able to do is, is expand that out to not just make that, that connection between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia, but also look at how you connect uh, disadvantaged or marginalised populations with people with privilege or power across the world um, and take what we've learned and, and built in Australia to be able to share that with other cultures as well, which I think is incredibly powerful. Yeah, no, and I've, I've just, I keep on just hearing good and good things about AIM. Like, it seems yeah. like it's such an incredible organisation. And I think we're, ho hopefully we can get um, more Indigenous activists on our podcast, because I think that's something... Yeah, something we haven't talked about Yeah, before. we haven't talked about or explored. Um, but yeah, and then, so from AIM, you then kind of, I imagine you found a love for not-for-profits, and you kind of... You're probably very glad that tourism in Australia or New South Wales didn't call you back then, right? Um, Scott Morrison was working for that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I could have been in ScoMo's marketing team. <laughs> um, and then um, you decided to head to Batia. Was that the trajectory? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So I, I came back from Indonesia, was lucky enough to get the job at AIM and started in a real, in a real program operations role. So it was was heading out to the universities, helping support the delivery of the program, which was fantastic, you know, hanging out with uni student volunteers like you guys and what you're doing and, and helping you within the programs to connect with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander high school kids. Um, but one of, the, one of the great things on top of, I, I guess, personally and a bit selfishly, one of the great things about working in a place like AIM is that you get uh, an incredible opportunity to experience um, management, leadership, business um, situations, scenarios, um, experiences that you wouldn't get in a more traditional or a, a more corporate um, style role. And so within my four years at AIM, we went from a team of about 10, 12 people to a team of 100 staff across the country. We went from working with about 300 volunteer mentors to I think one and a half thousand. Um, and we went from being in New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria to being truly national. And my role went from delivering a program at a couple of different universities to then managing the whole program team across the country to then being the general manager of the whole organization and looking after the people and the programs and the culture for what was then a national multi-million dollar 100 person staff, thousand, one and a half thousand volunteers organization. And I was 20, you know, 26, 27, 28 maybe, you know, just, just having that responsibility, those opportunities was incredible. And I'm incredibly grateful and humbled to have been able to have that opportunity. Um, but that then set me up to be able to also look at experience experiencing um, and engaging with other nonprofits around um, around different areas as well. And so at the same time that, that I was at AIM, a good friend of mine, Sebastian Robinson, was starting up an, a mental health organisation called Batir, which was really based off his 
own personal lived experience with um, depression whilst he was at uni and wanting to do something differently and, and change the conversation, which is, you know, the, the whole um, idea around campaigns like Are You OK Day, which is today as well, like you mentioned. Um, and so we used to catch up and talk about nonprofits, working with universities, working with schools, building organisations that could scale and grow. Um, and I got to learn more and more about Batir along the way and, and loved uh, what Seb was doing and, and what, what the way that he was normalising conversations around mental health. Um, and so I, I started to, to want to do more and more with him and um, managed, to, managed to convince him towards my end of my time at, um, at, at AIM, sorry, managed to convince him to give me a spot uh, on their board as a director, which again, I didn't have any idea what I needed to do as a director, but I, I thought that it would be a great opportunity. And said from his perspective was thinking, hey, if I get this guy into a position like that, then maybe one day he could potentially take over as CEO from me. And so that was the transition into the tier. I, I started as the board director. I did about 18 months on the board and then Seb let me know that he was considering moving on from that CEO role and asked me to uh, to take over from him, which in, I think it was 2015, then I uh, I made the jump from AIM over to Batir. Awesome. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, especially because it seems like you had this magic touch because whatever organisation you've been going to, they've been scaling and, you know, really um, improving their impact. Because Batia started with, just that, sorry, I forgot his name, Michael, right? Sebastian. Sebastian. Sebastian, Sebastian yeah. um, just speaking in schools by himself, right? Mm. And now, obviously, it's scaled to being quite a big mental health organization. In terms of these experiences being quite young and in these kind of being thrust into these leadership positions, what were your kind of biggest leadership lessons? Mm. Yeah, it's, um, it's funny because like hindsight and reflection is a beautiful thing and it gives you, you know, I, I get the opportunity now to do far more of that because I'm living a little bit of a less fast paced life up here on the North Coast, trying to, uh, trying to be a father to, to my little one year old daughter. Girl, uh, daughter. And, um, but I, I think there's also a key in that, like ref reflection and stopping and pausing and looking back at what you've done, whether it's that day, whether it's that week, whether it's month, whether it's that month, it gives you the opportunity to look at what you've been doing well and how you do more of that. And on the flip side, what have been the challenges and how you've overcome that and what you can learn from that so that you can be better that next day, that next month, that next, um, that next year. And so reflection and, and, and pausing and looking back and, and, picking out those key learnings, I think is always going to help you, not just in leadership, in life. Um, but I was lucky that I started my sort of a leadership journey in a mentoring organisation. And so that then embedded in me the importance of mentors and, and coaches and people who support you. And so I think as a young person, having opportunities like that, you, you, you're pushing yourself to achieve incredible things that you're probably not skilled enough to achieve. And so you've got to reach out to those people around you who have been there and done that in different fields and different experiences and learn from them and get them to support you. You know, I, I used to look at myself when I was in the CEO role as an elite athlete and no elite, elite athletes go and compete at the Olympic games on their own. They've got a full-time coach. 
They've got a nutritionist. There's a sports psychologist. They've got a team around them. They've got uh, mentors. Um, and so I tried to, to live my life in that same way. Surround yourself with as many great people as you can so that you're not having to know everything yourself and you're not having to feel like you're, you're responsible for every single decision because although you are in those leadership roles, there are a lot of people out there that can help you. Mm. So you also took on that role at a really young age, like in your late 20s. And most people that are CEOs, we sort of think them as like 50 or 60 year old. Bit of grey hair. Yeah, like some <laughs> bit of a belly going on. Um, but so I was wondering, like, what were, did you have a particular big challenge as being a CEO at such a young age? Yeah, yeah, lots of them. Pretty, pretty much daily big challenges. Um, the stress levels are high. The, the one thing I didn't mention is a psychologist as well. I had a very good psychologist um, that I caught up with regularly to make sure that um, I was doing the things to put myself in the best position to be able to handle and manage that stress and, and the impact on, on yourself that that takes. Um, the, first, the, the first massive challenge was transitioning from a founder to a CEO. So from Seb, who founded the organisation based on his own personal experience, to me taking over as a CEO, who still had that passionate, close connection to the organisation, but it wasn't my baby that I grew, that I created, that I, I brought into the world that, that Seb had. So I was essentially taking over Seb's baby, which was Batir at the time, and trying to work out how to grow and um, support and grow and, and give enough opportunity to this, this idea as possible. And so the stress and pressure that that placed on me at the time was really overwhelming. Um, it's, hard, it's hard not to feel that pressure, even when other people are telling you that, that you don't need to feel that. And so um, being able to manage those the, the stress and pressure that is placed on you when you're put into responsible positions of leadership, whether that's CEO, whether that's manager, whether whatever that is, um, being able to, sorry, there goes my headphones, being able to uh, recognise that, that those stress levels are going to have an impact on you personally and then doing things in your life that help you to manage those so that you can have as much energy um, and and capacity to deal with those as possible, I think is incredibly important. Mm, mm. Yeah, and I think it's um, very easy for us to sit here romanticize aspects of you being a young CEO, you doing all these crazy things. And I'm sure those experiences have had a very profound impact on your life. But I think that for a lot of our audience, so I'm gonna kind of shift a little bit. For a lot of our audience, um, a lot of them are Sydney University Business School students. And a lot of them, I think, are passionate about not-for-profits and, you know, having an impact on the world. But they, they almost feel a little bit scared to kind of pursue that path or don't think that, um, you know, that path can support them when they're older and that whole predicament that most people have around not-for-profits. Can you speak to that at all? And did you kind of have any inclination to ever, you know, go corporate, you know, cash out, retire early, anything like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. It's funny. I remember um, I remember early on when I took over as CEO um, and, and at AIM as well, a lot of people who were outside of the nonprofit world used to say things like, oh, 
excuse me, say, say things like, oh, it's so good that you've decided to, to commit yourself to nonprofits or, you know, good on you, um, you know, well done. You could do this, this and this. Um, it's great that you've, that you've made the, the sacrifice or whatever it might be. Um, but I never saw it that way. You know, I, I felt like I was the one in the lucky position that had been able to take the opportunity to jump into the world of non-for-profit and work in these incredible organisations with great people. Um, I'll, I guess I'll put a bit of a disclaimer on it. Like, I'm lucky. I grew up in a middle-class family in the city in Sydney. I had supportive and loving people around me who, who backed my decisions and, and helped me to do what I what I could do. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not stupid enough to think that I didn't have a bit of a safety net to fall back on. I recognise that a lot of people don't have the luxury to make the decisions that I was able to make to pursue a career in the non-profit sector. Um, but but I, I did have that opportunity. And so for me, it was never a case of, um, of this a career in the non-profit sector being a sacrifice. It was an incredible opportunity for me to be able to spend the majority of my waking hours working in alignment with my values and my ethics and my beliefs to achieve my vision and my mission for what I wanted to, to do as a person. And so I think if you're, you're able to flip your mindset from it being an obligation or a sacrifice to an incredible opportunity, then more opportunities come. And, you know, I, like you, you still get paid in the nonprofit sector. You still, you still earn a living and you can still support yourself if you make smart decisions. And, um, and so I don't think, I think it's more a mindset thing than anything. Um, and, and if you're really clear, and this is the one, one of the things I've learned along the way as well, if you're really clear on what your values are and what you believe in and what you want to achieve in terms of your vision or your mission, then that will help you guide your decisions, whether that is entering the corporate world or the nonprofit world or a bit of both or whatever. Um, yeah, I think, does that, does that address the question that you're asking? Yeah, no, totally. That, that makes a massive sense. And a lot of people kind of just assume that a lot of, actually a lot of people have this idea that when you work for not-for-profit, you don't get paid, which yeah. is something that- Well, that's why I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to highlight that. People, people think, still have this perception of the charity sector that you that everyone volunteers mm. but the nonprofit world is is addressing the biggest challenges that currently face humanity yeah and that and so we have to pay people to attract the skill and experience needed to address those significant challenges and issues and so yeah it's an important point to highlight so you just mentioned that the nonprofits are trying to address the biggest challenges of humanity. Something I'd sort of like to go into. So obviously, as we said before, it's Are You Okay Day. What was Vatir doing to sort of combat the challenge of mental health? What was their approach? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it's a it's a really it's a really beautifully simple approach in which we work with young people who have had a lived experience with mental health issues, whether that's something like depression or anxiety, or whether it's eating disorders, um, attempted suicide, caring for a friend, whatever it might be, whatever that experience or story is, we work with them to train them to be able to shape that story in a way that can positively impact other people. So 
we have training programs and that was my first experience with Batir going in and, and hearing a bunch of other young people's stories about what they had been through and how they'd uh, use support services and people around them to get through those and recover and, and live incredible lives. And so we then take those young people and those stories back out into schools and universities and run um, sort of positive, high energy, fun, engaging programs based around the sharing of those stories to try and reduce the stigma surrounding mental health and then bridge the gap between mental health support services and young people so that it makes it easier to get help and people feel like it's okay to go and reach out for support when they need it. Yeah, such a valuable thing. I know, and I think that honestly in the last three to five years, most people I talk to have noticed this kind of big reduction in stigma around mental health. And I think we're seeing more and more people talk about it, more and more people share these things on social media. Um, and especially at a time like this, mental health was a problem in Australia as it was before, um, obviously, COVID-19 and everything that's happened with isolation. And like, we're waiting to see the statistics, but a lot of people are predicting a large, sharp increase in suicides and uh, mental health illnesses um, as a result of what happened. Do you have anything um, to kind of say to people right now in lockdown, um, maybe struggling a little bit? This has been a weird year. Uh, and like from, from a kind of your experience at Batia, any like words of wisdom? Yeah, yeah. Look, it's, it's, it is really hard. It is really challenging and difficult. You know, I, like I'm isolated here in paradise. Like this is where I wanted to be isolated and now I'm forced to stay here um, and even within that I feel those feelings of track of being tracked and disconnected and isolated like I've got good friends in down in Melbourne who are really feeling what lockdown feels like um, and so I think the, the first really important thing is to recognize and accept and and um, and communicate the fact that this is a really challenging and really difficult and testing time for us all. And so if we can acknowledge that and be aware of it, we can show a bit of empathy and understanding um, for the position that people are in and that we're in ourselves and take a bit of pressure off ourselves. Like even if we just get through this year, then that is a success. You know, we're in a global pandemic the world is shut down. Like, let's just get through this together. And that's a success. Let's not try and beat ourselves up about not achieving all those things, about not being the best at all the things that we want to. Like, if I just quickly go interrupt, maybe something yeah, yeah. Um, pretty contextual for our audience is a lot of people we know are graduating um, around this time and kind of going into one of the most difficult job markets. And a lot of these people I know personally, and they've done everything right, really good uni marks, you know, done a lot of good internships and kind of really worked hard to be in this position and kind of having the prospects of going to next year unemployed or not getting the job um, that they wanted, I think is something kind of contextual for our audience. Mm. No, it's a really good, good point to make. You know, I'd, I'd, as, as uh, you do, Sash, we do some work in schools at the moment um, through young change agents and you can see the stress and pressure that especially year 12s are under leaving leaving school in that uncertainty and and so yeah there's there's parallels and similarities obviously between the uni students going out there into a into a very scary job world um i think i think from a personal perspective 
what we've got to realize that life is a long game and it actually doesn't matter what happens in the next three months, six months, year, probably a couple of years, because in five years, 10 years time, all it's going to be is stories and experiences that you can share with other people. And whether they're good ones or whether they're challenging ones, they're going to be things that you learn from and become a better person from. And so try and put a bit of context in the fact that you don't need to have everything now, that good things come to those who wait and anything that's worthwhile. And the, you know, these are, these are quite stereotypical cliches, but anything that works well, that's worthwhile is going to take a lot of effort and challenge and setbacks. And so that's exactly what these things are now. And so recognize and accept that and be okay with the fact that things are going to take a bit longer and going to be a bit harder now because we are in the middle of a global pandemic. Mm, yeah, that's really important advice for the people that are sort of struggling to get grad jobs and finishing off their degree. Yeah, like, yeah we know a lot of people like that and you can imagine it's a tough situation. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I think, I think you touched on it before, you know, probably one of the best things that's happened to me in my career is that I didn't hear back from Tourism New South Wales. So, you know, maybe the fact that you're not getting this, these grad jobs are going to be the best thing in your career. You just don't know it right now. Yeah. Uh, kind of across this conversation, it seems like a lot of things you've done in your life have kind of been off intuition to a certain extent. Um, this kind of gut feel of what was right and just exploring, which I think is awesome. And I want to kind of extend that into asking about what you're doing now the move up the North Coast. Um, because it, if someone looked at your life from kind of a macro or a holistic basis, they'll be like, this guy was such a young CEO, then he moved up the coast, surfing, looking after his daughter now, more of a life. It seems like you've shifted more towards a lot lifestyle factors. Um, I'd love to touch on that because on this podcast, we talk to a lot of inspirational people, a lot of really kind of high energy people that have done incredible things. But um, we don't actually talk that much about lifestyle and kind of creating the life that you want want to live. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's actually um, really important because probably most of your listeners and probably you guys, you're not really thinking about that right now. But if you if you embed some little things from from early on along the way, it actually becomes a lot easier when you get to my age or a little bit later down the track where you maybe want to make some of those bigger jumps or those bigger changes. Um, you know, to be honest, lifestyle and life has always been incredibly important to me. Um, it's just that I've had it for a long time. I had it filled a lot with work and career. Um, and that was by, by choice and opportunity and chance that I got to do that. But I always managed to have, and they were a smaller chunk of the pie at the time, but I placed a lot of importance on my mental health, on uh, fun and activities, on friends and family, on community. Um, they just got a little bit smaller of the chunk of the pie. And um, from, you know, from, from a while ago now, we started having the, the discussion, my, my wife now and I, that at some stage we wanted to try and redistribute those, those portions of the pie to be able to create more time and space for for our relationship, for um, starting a family. And to be able to do that, we wanted to get out of the city. Um, and one of the biggest compromises that I had to take was, was giving up that CEO role. Um, you know, I, I love Batir, I'm still on the board of directors. Um, um, I've just kicked off a national advisory group within Batir and I work with the young people there. 
um, to do a lot of different things from a volunteer capacity now. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a fact of me having enough of, of the organisation and, and wanting to move on. It was purely a fact of going, at some stage, I've got to make a hard decision and take a risk and compromise some things in my life to be able to open up time and space to be able to focus on other things. Um, and so that, that was really, I guess, the way in which we were able to do that. We had, we had a plan and a vision for, for what we wanted to do. We had no idea how that was going to happen or what exactly that was going to look like. Um, but we had a, a rough idea of where we wanted to head. And then at some stage, we just needed to take the risk and work out what the compromises were to be able to do that. Um, and that's what we did a couple of years ago when we then moved up here to, uh, to North Coast, New South Wales. Mm. Did you feel at all like there was a hit to your ego when you went from being the CEO of like an awesome organisation in a capital city and then moving to a sort of like a less populous city and then putting more emphasis on family lifestyle? Like, did you feel yeah. any weird sort of struggles on the inside? I still do, mate. I still do. And that was, that was one of the things that I really wanted to, to highlight in terms of lifestyle design or... Um, or big changes and transitions in your life. Um, you learn a lot about yourself and especially about the role of ego and, and what that and how that impacts your, your life. Um, yeah, every, every day, I think it's a, it's a battle and a challenge and, and a learning for me in terms of how I embrace my ego to make me the best person that I can be, but also manage and control my ego to be able to be the best person for others and within the context of of the decisions and the other decisions i've made you know when you're when you're in a leadership position when you work at a place like Batir or wherever it might be the organization your role your power your responsibility becomes your identity and so leaving that means that you're changing the the identity or what your perceived identity of who you are. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a work in progress. It's something that I feel in some way, shape or form every day. And to be honest, I don't think it's something that will go away. I think, I think ego it plays um, a, a really important role, both positive and negative in every day of your life. It's more that what's important for me is what you learn from it and how you can, um, how you can use it to your advantage and not let it overcome you. Mm. I think you said something really important at the start. You said embrace your ego because I think sometimes there's like these new age sort of sayings like don't listen to your ego, put your ego aside and make the decision that's right for you. But I think that's a bit of bullshit now. I think like the ego is definitely something that sort of controls us and it almost is us, like what we identify with and like sort of our place in the wider context of society. So I think you framed that really in a really cool way saying, find the positives out of the ego and just making sure to sort of distance yourself from the negatives. And it mm. looks like you've done that really, really well. Yeah. Th thanks, Matt. I think it, I think it is important, Adam. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't think the world is as simple as black and white and good or bad. Everything is a little bit of, of both. And so ego for me fits into that completely. Like if it wasn't for my ego, I would have never said yes to a CEO role at 29. Mm. I wouldn't have thought that I could do it. I wouldn't have done it. 
um, is that if it wasn't for my ego, I wouldn't have gone from a program manager to a program director to a general manager within three years because you don't say yes to those opportunities. Um, but at the same time, if it wasn't for my ego, then I wouldn't, I'd, I'd just be living the happy-go-lucky, easy life and not worry about the fact that I don't have title or responsibility anymore. And so that's mm -hmm. the negative or the hard part of it, but it's it's the same thing. It just fluctuates between. between. Yeah, I, I love how, where you guys are going with this. And I think that at our age, especially graduating into all of these jobs and like, I think a lot, this is the kind of an, at an age where we almost need to embrace our ego to, drive us to certain places, especially as young men who want to have a huge impact on the world. But then I think that it comes with massive self-awareness to do what you did, to think about your values and what's really important to you and then take this kind of step back. And I'm sure that on your trajectory, being a CEO at 29, there's always these afterthoughts of what if, what if I was back in Sydney, what, what would I be doing now? All that kind of stuff. Um, I was wondering what's that kind of internal conversation like? and. I, I like I don't know, I don't know if this is too much of a personal question, but are you happy with your decision? Yeah, no, go good. For, go for it, mate. It is a personal question, but that's what these things are all about. Um, what's the <laughs> what's the internal dialogue like? It is. It's busy, mate. It's busy. There's a there's a lot of it that goes on, um, and and in order to try and, and this is one of the points in terms of, of learnings and lessons I wanted to make earlier as, as well. I feel the skill of mindfulness is, is so important um, in, a, in so many different things, but especially in being able to identify and manage and control and embrace at times your internal dialogue. Um, because if I let it run wild, I can be with my daughter the whole day, but actually not really be present with her for one moment because I'm thinking about what if, what could I be doing? What's this guy doing? What are they doing? How's this working? What impact could I have here? And you actually miss the whole reason why I made this decision in the first place, which is to be able to have that day to be present with my daughter and watch her learn to walk, take her first step, laugh, giggle, cry, scream, whatever it might be. Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to, um, to develop my wisdom and knowledge and understanding of mindfulness, of meditation, of myself, of my brain, of thinking, of thought, of how, how I can push and extend myself in different ways so that I can truly embrace a very different way of, of growth um, and, and leadership um, and responsibility, which is now being um, a supportive and loving um, husband and a supporting and loving, loving uh, dad. And so to your second part of the question, 100% it is the right decision. I feel so lucky and so grateful for the life that we've been able to create for ourselves. But to your point, Adam, um, every single day is, is also a beautiful, challenging time that, that I'm trying to work out how I can learn from and grow from as opposed to it getting pushed into overthinking, um, of analysing, of questioning and second-guessing, um, which, uh, which doesn't serve me at all. Would this be right in summary that, like, 
kind of before you were this young CEO, a lot of your conception of self would have inevitably be tied to that. But now, nowadays, you, you kind of lead with the person you want to be before what you do. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think um, I think in summary, that makes a lot of sense. Like, I definitely tried to lead as a CEO or as a general manager with authenticity, um, with a lot of self-awareness, with my values and, um, and with who I was as a person, genuinely. Um, and so I don't think there was ever that massive disconnect. I think it's now just, you're, like, it's very easy. People can place you really easy in a situation, in a conversation, in an environment when you've got a title like a CEO. Whereas now I'm a bit of everything. I'm a bit of all of these things. And so it's, you've got to work out how you lead and how you live your life with a bit more ambiguity and uncertainty and a few different things that, that mix in together to, to make you who you are when you meet someone new or when you, when you're trying to do something differently. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's, um, it's a bit of that that you said, Sasha, but again, to my sort of point before, I think it's just, it's, it's leading or, or living with a lot more complexity outside of your, your career um, and, uh, and trying to work out how to do that. Yeah, mm. I, I think that's really, really um, inspirational. And I think that a lot of especially young men watching, which is something that historically men usually haven't considered. It's been very career orientated for a lot of guys. So I think this is something we're probably going to see a lot more in our generation um, start to happen. And especially as Sydney house prices keep going up and up, <laughs> that there's going to be people that are considering moves to um, different places and especially for lifestyle reasons. Yeah, I think that's going to be a huge trend into the future. <laughs> like just, I've been doing more travel around sort of New South Wales and Australia lately. You sort of mm. meet people that are doing the whole working from home thing in these beautiful places where you just don't have all the traffic all the noise all the people and it's yeah. like, like people are going to start to flock to those areas in the future for sure yeah and new cities will in turn be created yeah and i think what we're, what we're all going through now is kind of accelerated that process where a lot of people are realizing look i can do this work remotely a lot of companies mm. are saying look you don't have to come into the office and there's a lot of people now thinking about moving out of like real hot spots like San Francisco, the Bay Area to work in other places because they can do the same job. And that's also a very complex situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I think, I think that's it's an important point to make. Two, two years ago when I left Sydney to here, I couldn't do the same career that I was doing there that I could here. Whereas I think now, maybe, maybe not your top level CEO or senior leader roles, but a lot of a lot of organisations, you can work from anywhere now, and so you actually you're not taking as much of a risk anymore because you, you're not compromising your career and what you're doing. You're just being able to do it in a beautiful place without a lot of those other challenging things. Yeah, no, um, I'm looking forward to see how that kind of develops. But as our kind of like flagship thing, we always do with our podcasts. Uh, we finish off by asking our guests um, if there's something that you wouldn't leave our audience with, uh, what would that be? Yeah, for sure. Look, I think it's probably pretty obvious considering our conversation. I think you pulled it out a few times as well, Sachin. For, for me, the biggest lesson I've learned along the way is that you've got to say yes to opportunities, especially if they put you out of your comfort zone because um, they, they will open up doors They'll open up more opportunities and they'll put you in the places that you want to be. Um, but you've got to be uncomfortable and you've got to say yes to be able to do it. 
Yeah, awesome. That's awesome advice. And I think that's echoed a lot throughout our We've heard that a lot lately, yeah. so there's something there. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Sam. It's, it's nice that your daughter didn't wake up during the podcast. Yeah, I don't know if that was just the headphones. Or <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a crying baby somewhere. <laughs> she still um, sounds good. Thanks so much for your time. Enjoy up there on the coast, living, living the life. While I, while our Sydney folks kind of get underway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, good, good on you for doing it. It's a great, great uh, privilege to be able to share some of those stories with you. And thank you for, for doing what you do to try and share knowledge and wisdom from different people in both ways. You know, I learn a lot from you guys in this. And so it's good to, uh, good to be able to see young leaders like yourself taking the reins of the conversation and making sure that the right messages get out there to, uh, to your peers and other people going through similar situations as well. Awesome. awesome. All Thank right. Thank you so much, Sam. That was great. See you guys. See ya.